Hello and welcome to Baka Banter, a podcast about all things anime and otaku culture. My name is Ravi and I'm joined by the lad who's looking really hungover today, Yonatan. Do you want to say hi, Yanni? It's actually a little bit factual, but we're, we're not going to elect to talk about that in great detail. <laughs> I did want to mention at, at the top of the show that here at Baka Banter, we really love supporting all of the guests that are nice enough to come onto the podcast and, and talk to us about what they do in the anime industry or anything adjacent to anime. And so Marissa Duran, the, the voice of, of Hori, who was our most recent guest, is selling signed autographed prints that you can look up on her website. They're commissioned, so that's an artist's drawing of Hori and Miyamura, and they look awesome. We just got ours in the mail super recently, so thank you for that, Marissa. Thank you for coming on the podcast again. Uh, it's already framed, and it looks really, really great. So if you're interested in, in getting one, if you're a big Hori Mia fan, then just go to her Twitter or Google Marissa Duran store, and you'll be able to find it. It's a really, really awesome piece of art and really fun for us to start collecting cool merch from guests that come on the podcast. She also personalized it for us, which is really nice. And uh, I've seen a lot of other people who are getting the same artwork, and it's it's just a really nice thing for her to do. Yeah, very cool item for any fan to own. Yep. So in today's episode, Yanni and I are going to finally tackle a topic that we've touched on in a number of episodes, isekai. We're going to explain what isekai is, discuss its history and appeal. Why are you shaking your head? <laughs> because I can't believe I'm talking about isekai with you in a full episode. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to also lay out some pivotal shows in the genre and how we felt about them. So let's get into it. So Yanni, it's finally here, our isekai episode. Do you want to actually explain to our listeners what isekai is? I love how you said it's finally here as if the fan base, the Bakabanter fan base has been collectively holding its breath until we got the isekai. Episode. You have no idea how excited I am. I mean, every I have an idea. minute I have for an the idea. last three hours, you've been like, finish the show notes, please. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's been a process, but we finally made it. So yeah, what, what does isekai mean? So if you take just the literal translation, isekai just means parallel world. And roughly speaking, more broadly speaking, it's a genre of Japanese media and anime specifically in, in which a person is transported from the real world that they live in and inhabit to another world that often has fantasy or RPG elements. And we're going to talk about some of the tropes that isekai anime has taken from sort of its roots up until now. But just to give a clear outset and, and foundation for today's discussion, that the term isekai just means parallel world. Yeah, and we've mentioned a couple times now that it has almost completely saturated the medium. It is almost impossible to see an anime season that doesn't have at least two or three isekai shows in it. Damn, two or three is two or three is uh, a lowball estimate. I don't think there's <laughs> that many. I don't think there's that many. There are some seasons where we're pushing upwards of five. I just <laughs> want to make that clear. Well, yeah. So why don't we actually step back and understand why that is and get a look at the history and Again, as I said, why it is that we're looking at two to, as you're saying, six shows per season. So it, it really has been a meteoric rise over the time, especially that we've been consuming anime. At least we, I think, both started around 2012. And that seems to have also been kind of the pivotal year for Isekai. So we're going to talk about, as I said, the history and also its rise to popularity. So why don't we start off by the latter of those two? Why do we think Isekai is so popular? 
Yeah, and just to quickly sketch out what this episode is going to look like for listeners, we're, we're going to have a discussion about why this guy's popular and why it's been so successful. Uh, and then we'll have a history lesson from Ravi in sort of the origins of Isekai leading up to the modern day shows that, that we know as Isekai. And we'll kind of cap off the discussion by talking about a few shows that exemplify some of the themes that, that we'll talk about and also maybe commenting on what we think the future holds for Isekai. So mm-hmm. let's start with with that first question that you asked. Why is Isekai so popular? So there are several reasons, but I think there are two that we can all agree on are very important to its rise. And one is gamer culture and the other is the ability for people, especially within that that culture, to self-insert into the characters that we often see as the protagonists of Isekai. Mm-hmm. At least the modern iteration of Isekai took off. And the reason it took off is because it included elements that are familiar to us, that are appealing to us. Uh, and by us, I mean an audience that has grown up with video games and in particular role-playing games, RPGs. You are literally addicted to these still. Well, you say addicted to these still, and I, that's not that broadly true. I actually haven't consumed that much RPG content, but mm-hmm. I am currently still obsessed with Genshin Impact, which is basically that infused with anime stylization so currently i guess i am sort of the target audience even though isekai isn't my favorite genre by any stretch of the imagination i wanted to say we've probably both poured like thousands of hours into rpgs and i'm gonna say yeah that's probably still true you probably in the last literal year me over the past like 10 years yeah something like that yeah and so isekai allow us to take the world that we enjoy from our games and see them come to life on screen. And for me, at least, that's an instant hook because it allows me to see something I love and to see that animated and to see that come to life. And as an extension of that, like almost any person who loves mythology, who loves fantasy, I have at least definitely fantasized about finding myself within mythology, within Greek or Norse myths or adventuring in Middle Earth or being sucked into, you know, some of these favorite video games. Yeah, I mean, and Isekai is basically all about that. I mean, I think it's clear to listeners, at least even maybe for the first few minutes of this episode, that you're a huge Isekai fan for some of these reasons that you're sketching out. And I am not the biggest fan of Isekai, but it's not really because of the notion of what Isekai is. I think there are some Isekai that are really well done and that are creative and that I really, really like. And so I can relate to this idea of wanting to self-insert into some sort of fantasy world or some sort of mythological world like you're laying out. I think that idea is very appealing. The the issue that I have with Isekai is only in how sort of repetitive and oversaturated the same tropes have become where you're getting ideas that are sort of recycled minus one single twist. Mm -hmm. We're going to get cover a lot of this stuff, but I do think that this idea of being transported and being able to self-insert is super appealing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think they allow us to kind of live vicariously through the characters that we're seeing on screen. And I will say, you know, in, in some shows, um, even in Isekai uh, or, or outside of Isekai as well, it's sometimes hard to connect with characters. Characters and protagonists within Isekai, I find myself at least having some type of implicit connection at the beginning because what they're experiencing and the worlds they're transported to are situations that I wish I could find myself in. So it's an immediate connection I'm seeing to the, the, the characters and protagonists. Oh, it's not because they're all, you know, otakus that never leave their house and you can relate to that. Nah, bro, I'm not <laughs> I'm not a fucking neat otaku. <laughs> I also do think that, you know, world building is hard. 
in any yeah. story. It's 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 one of the that's why there are stories, especially fantasy or, or sci-fi stories, that a lot of people really love, and it ends up being because the world building is very very good, and that's something that's really hard to craft you know you have to come up with the concept and flesh out the world make it feel lived in make it feel like there are clear rules we've, we've talked about this on the podcast before and, and th- that's hard for writers to do and that's regardless of how interesting your initial concept or initial idea is and so i think what isekai does is it gives you tropes and formulas that viewers already know and they're familiar with from previous isekai and from their experience playing video games and it gives a foundation for that world building and also gives a very easy mechanic for exposition and exploration of another world because the character that is getting transported after he or she inevitably get hit by a truck has to, you? <laughs> has to learn about this fantasy world just like the viewer has to learn about this, this fantasy world or the world mm-hmm. that they're isekai to. And so there's a nice common ground where we understand some of the rules or we have some expectations for what the isekai world is, is going to look like and what rules are going to be instated. And we also, oh, just like the characters, need the exposition and need the exploration. So while that doesn't excuse cheap or poor storytelling that we often see in, in the genre, it, it does give sort of a shortcut to doing all the tough world building that fantasy stories have to do. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing, the other major thing is that a lot of these stories have a quest-like structure or an architecture where the protagonist has to overcome some difficulties. I mean, just by being transported to a different world, you already see the difficulty of exploring what's going on. How did I get here? What's my role in this game? And this type of linear storytelling where we're seeing characters start off at the outset with an issue, have to overcome that issue, have to now solve whatever puzzles or you know make make some impact in the world that they're now in, that is another thing that a lot of viewers can get behind. We've talked about many different genres of anime. I mean, you know, Slice of Life, for example, could have very little plot, could have very little long-term narrative structure, and there are many fans of that genre. Again, similar to that, Isekai has a very set archetype where we're transported to a new world, we have to overcome these difficulties, and people who like that concept will find any Isekai easy to get behind. Yeah, I think one another sort of aspect that I want to highlight is the idea of fairness and and objectivity. I think a lot of times we all know life can be super unfair. And that that's just like how no, it what goes, are you talking right? about, bro? <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> and li- and life can be hard, right? Like sometimes your hard work is just doesn't pay off. And I think these type of isekai stories, especially the ones that rely on sort of an, an RPG or a JRPG style world, introduce objective metrics right that that's what rpgs kind of are about right there are quests like you mentioned there is a power system there are checkpoints you, you have to work towards and so i think in addition to to the self-insert i think a lot of times people that are embedded in, in gaming culture or in otaku culture i think can sort of relate to a yearning for just some kind of objectivity where there's a system in which the protagonist can say, okay, like if I work hard and accomplish X, Y, and Z, I will be rewarded and people in this world will recognize hard work in a way that sometimes doesn't occur in real life. Yeah, Konosuba does a great job of that. Just yeah. getting <laughs> rewarded for all that hard effort. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Konosuba is a subversion in, in some ways that, that we'll talk about later. Yeah. So I think 
aside from what we've laid out and, and sort of the appeal and reason for the popularity in, in isekai, there are certainly many, many tropes in, in modern isekai that can be used to sort of define it. I think we'll save those for when we're working through some specific shows and, and working through the history of, of isekai. So I'm going to hand it over to you now as you start to walk us through the, the early origins of isekai and how that's evolved into the modern era. And I haven't seen any of these show notes, so I, I'm going to be learning with the audience and, and interjecting where necessary. You're really setting this up as a monologue man this <laughs> no, is really not, not what it's, it's intended to be but it's not, it's <laughs> not gonna be a monologue don't worry again kind of like we discussed in our uh previous episodes i really do like history and i like learning about the background of a genre and how it's essentially cultivated itself to the present day so let's talk about the early origins of isekai and let's work up to understand how it is that isekai has become this dominant genre the fundamental concept tying all isekai together, which is being transported to another world, has its origins in works of literature that actually existed far before anime. The earliest occurrence of this theme that I could actually find is from Japanese fairy tales, and specifically a fairy tale that's based on a legend that dates all the way back to the 8th century. This tale tells the story of Urashi Mataro, who was a fisherman who one day finds this turtle that's being tortured by a group of kids. And he saves that turtle and finds out later that it was actually the princess of this underwater kingdom. So he's invited to that kingdom by the emperor, and he finds out that the princess, who was the turtle he saved, is named Otohime. It's actually a really, really great story. It's a fantastic fairy tale for any people who like reading those. And it has quite a sad ending, and I don't want to spoil that here. So you should actually go read it if you get the chance. But again, we see the early indications of an isekai or transported to a different world. Urushima Taro was transported to the underwater kingdom. And after this tale, we begin to see this trope becoming more prevalent in 19th and 20th century English literature. So famous children's stories that we're all pretty familiar with, which maybe shouldn't be children's stories, but we find Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland, which came out in 1865, The Wizard of Oz from 1900, and The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe from 1950. And all of these works to find a subgenre of fantasy called portal fantasy, which is where a fantastical world can be entered by either falling down into a hole or moving through a wardrobe. And the fantastic elements actually remain contained within the worlds um, that they're part of. So these three stories actually even got adapted into really well-known movies throughout the 20th century. And I don't know if you've seen this at all, but Alice in Wonderland actually got an anime in 1983. Yeah, so I actually did know that, but I think most people listening to this will not know that. And I really encourage you to find it somewhere online and watch it because it's it's just fun to see something that everybody is like very, very familiar with as a yeah. novel and as a sort of Western adaptation uh, into a movie. And of course, the Disney movie as well seeing it sort of the, the anime rendition of it. <laughs> yeah. I think in general, maybe it will be surprising to people that haven't really looked at the history of Isekai at all, that, that Alice in Wonderland is sort of the progenitor of a lot of these portal fantasy Isekai type stories. Because I think when people think about Isekai, they think of it as like a strictly Japanese concept that's that's contained to, to anime and manga and light novels. And that's just really not true at all. Like many of these Isekai stories come from... Alice in Wonderland, which then inspired The Wizard of Oz and, mm -hmm. and The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, like you said. And so I think it's cool to see that there actually is some crossover between cultures when it comes to something like Itsukai. I had not heard of this Japanese legend that you mentioned, but mm -hmm. I also think, I mean, it makes sense. Like, it's not that crazy of a concept to be 
to think of a fantasy story where the the protagonist is is transported to another world so i think it makes sense that it also pops up here and there at other points in history and i'm sure there are probably other examples that people could find somewhere out there but mm-hmm. really i think the beginning of the exploration of, of isekai as a genre really really starts with alice in wonderland yeah absolutely i mean as we were doing the research for this i kind of found it intriguing to see how modern some of these concepts are i mean fantasy itself as a genre was really influenced by and and kind of derived from J.R.R. tolkien's works right and and yeah. again in in the whole span of history that is still pretty recent yeah. um, i find that very interesting In Japan, though, the first modern example of a protagonist actually being transported into a fantasy world came in 1976 when Haruka Takachiho's Warrior from Another World began to serialize. I just want to say that actually sounds like it could be a modern day light novel title. (laughs) If if you add a little bit more plot synopsis with the title, we're basically there. Just be like Warrior from Another World with my smartphone and you have yourself a (laughs) modern day isekai. This is actually a short fantasy novel about a high schooler named Ryoji who's summoned to take up this magic sword and fight against a demon king, which right now sounds very standard and like very run of the mill. I'm like, great. So it's Konosuba. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So back then as a concept that was relatively unexplored like 50 years ago. A few years later, in 1983, we got what most people consider to be the very first isekai anime, and this was Aura Battler Dunbine. Now, you have to remember that we're looking back on history, and the word isekai hadn't really been coined yet to describe this genre, but Dunbine contains many of the fantastical elements that we now associate with isekai. So this show was actually created by Yoshiyuki Tomino, and do you know that name? Does that name sound familiar to you at all? No. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> should, should it? <laughs> I think it should, because for some people, that, that name may be kind of a reminder of this small niche franchise uh, known as Gundam. Ah, yes. Um, so, a, a very under under the radar <laughs> it's pre- franchise. It's pretty, pretty underrated, you yeah, know? Yeah. It's like, no, no. I've never um, heard of it. <laughs> so Yoshi, uh, Yoshiyuki Tomino was the creator of Gundam, um, and he'd created Gundam a few years before Dunbine in 1979. The fact that Gundam and Dunbine share a creator actually makes a lot of sense because if you watch anything from Dunbine, what you'll see is it tells the story of Shozama, which is a young man who's actually summoned to this world of Bison Well to defeat an evil ruler. And on prominent display is this insectoid mecha suit. So you should actually look this up if you're at all nostalgic about the mecha genre because it is just a really cool nod to the fact that the Gundam creator actually loves Isekai. And he really did, you know, continue writing and exploring this world of Bison Well, um, which is just, just a lot of fun. Um, it's just a very interesting, well-developed world. Yeah, two, two sort of comments about that. One is it is actually sort of cool to see a crossover story between mecha and isekai which i'm actually now that i think about it shocked hasn't had a modern reinterpretation on the concept i mean maybe mm-hmm. it's because well we have to do a mech episode at some point but mecha has like pretty much died out minus yeah. a few shows here and there and maybe that's the reason we haven't gotten that as like a spin-off of isekai but mm-hmm. i'm shocked that that hasn't been attempted in, in the modern area and if anybody if i'm wrong and there has been a show like that that i just like don't know about in the past like five or ten years then i would love to know and then the second thing i just want to say in my defense the reason i don't recognize that name is because i haven't thought about gundam <laughs> since i was in like middle school probably or elementary school even when i used to like read some gundam and watch some gundam so you know, 
give me a pass on it. Basically. I mean, I think you, that's fair. I also, I mean, if if I got cold called on a Japanese name, yeah. I again, I'm not very familiar with many light novel authors' names or directors' names, so I think that's totally fair. If you think I was 10 years old and committing Japanese names of authors to memory, then you're <laughs> sorely mistaken. <laughs> yeah. So, well, after Dunbine, at least there are a few other notable isekai that came out in the 80s, and there's no way you've heard of these. So don't even don't yeah, even worry about not. this. Pretty well-known ones for people that were growing up around this time. Um, Leda, The Fantastic Adventure of Yoko, and Fire Tripper. And these are actually both OVAs. People who don't know what OVAs are, they're original video animation. So basically, this is the equivalent of like straight to DVD in Western culture. I was just going to say, people might recognize them now because... Mm you often get them in in modern anime if there is going to be like an extra special episode of some show then a lot of times there'll be like an ova that goes straight to dvd but now they're sort of just released when they come out like very recently there was a kaguya-sama ova and it was Mm -hmm. basically just like an extra episode that you could watch for fun but isn't like consequential to the main story so that's why it's not included in the run Yeah, exactly. So for, you know, around this time, a lot of anime was airing on television as it still does. But OVAs would obviously not air on television and go straight to like VHS or something. This is a generational difference. I don't know if people still know what VHS is. (laughs) I mean, I do. but (laughs) Yeah, we do. You know, it wasn't until the 90s that the genre really had its first major boom. So we were both fetuses at the time, but do you remember any 90s isekai? So I want to say no, mm-hmm. but I think I can elaborate a little bit more. One show that I have heard tons and tons about that I haven't seen is Vision of Escaflone, which I'm sure you will mention at some point during this history lesson. A lot of people talk about that when, when they talk about isekai. That's a show that I still haven't gotten around to seeing, but I know is like landmark in, in the genre and Some people really, really like still. So that's definitely one that I know existed in the 90s as a concept. And then I watched Digimon growing up, which I know is like very, very late 90s. But there we go. That is definitely an isekai. Inuyasha as well, which I watched a lot less of, but also can be mentioned in in the same breath as Digimon. Digimon, especially like in hindsight, is actually quite good. I know a lot of people have this like, (laughs) was Digimon or Pokemon better? (laughs) argument and i'm like an enormous pokemon fan still but if we're purely talking about the anime digimon actually has a plot (laughs) which is like good this is spicy because (laughs) i uh i i tried to make this argument with my roommates and we were just like all right why are we even having this argument fuck it let's just go watch the originals I rewatched Digimon and oh my god, it has not aged well. Okay, I'm sure if I went back and watched it, it hasn't aged yeah. that well as like, you know, a, a late 90s anime, which many probably from that era don't uh, age that well. And and Pokemon maybe holds up a little bit better, especially because yeah. people are super nostalgic about it. Like I'm super nostalgic about it. But mm. if we just look at the plot, <laughs> Digimon has one, <laughs> yeah. Pokemon doesn't have one. And in fact, Ash is trash he never (laughs) wins anything he literally loses the pokemon league championships in every fucking iteration this might be the first time our viewers or listeners hear you have a spicier take than me (laughs) 
<laughs> he loses is... the Pokemon League Championships at every iteration, and he's also 10 for like 20 <laughs> years. This dude never fucking ages. How is that possible? <laughs> it's so good. Anyways, anyways, yeah. continue, please. I'll, I'll be right, done yeah. with that. I love we, Pokemon. I do love Pokemon. but We don't need to talk more about <laughs> fucking metal gray ultra gururu graymon, so <laughs> let's, let's not talk about Digimon. But, um, you know, you, you did mention quite a few really well-known shows. So there were a number of beloved isekai during this decade that fans of the genre may recognize. I'm going to add a few to your list. So The Twelve Kingdoms, which was from 1992, Magic Knight Ray Earth from 1993. The next three that I'm about to mention, I think, are must-watches for any fan of isekai. So L Hazard, which came out in 1995, Vision of Escaflone, which you mentioned, came out in 1996, and Now and Then, Here and Now, which came out in 1999. Those three, if anybody was watching Isekai in the 90s, you've almost certainly heard of or seen these. And these were really well-known, really well-liked shows. Vision of Escaflone was somewhat transformative for the genre. And now and then, here and now, is a, you know, a story that I don't want to spoil it because it's just deep and it's sad and it's very emotional. So you should definitely check it out if you haven't yet. I want to also here take a second to recognize Fushigi Yugi. Now, this is one that you should also must watch. And hopefully me discussing this with you will at least get you interested in it. Because this was a shoujo isekai. And it came out in 1992. And it was followed a, a character, Miyaka Yuki, who is this average student who sucked into an ancient Chinese novel titled The Universe of the Four Gods. So in this world, Yuki actually finds out that she's been summoned there as a princess of one of the gods, and she's tasked with gathering these seven divine protectors that'll bring peace to the warring countries. So Fushigi Yugi is a really fun watch. It's a comedy. It's an emotional like friendship story. It's a romance. It has some action. So really, it has all of the elements that we like in current isekai, but also has elements for people that don't like the current iteration of isekai. Like I said, like it has that, you know, female protagonist that has the focus on the nature of friendship. These female protagonists, I keep bringing this up because this was something that we saw in early isekai, like ones I mentioned, like Leda, like Fushigi Yugi, and breakout hits like the one you mentioned that had a very strong impact in the West, Inuyasha. And these are elements that are actually pretty rare to see nowadays. I think I totally agree with that. And I think it is very important to contextualize isekai, especially modern isekai, in the fact that it derived from fantasy and fantasy from the 90s which meant that a lot of the a lot of the worlds that characters get get transported aren't these jrpg style worlds that we see in in modern isekai but they're really pure imaginative fantasy worlds like you would see in in a ghibli movie for example and coupled with that are the female protagonists which are also a staple of fantasy anime from the 90s and these are really elements that you don't see as often in in modern isekai and even in anime in general like there is sort of a lack of pure fantasy shows and a lack of shows with strong female protagonists and so going back in history and seeing that that's what sparked the whole isekai boom is super super interesting i mean we just did the a whole episode on made in abyss mm -hmm. and we talked about how made in abyss is such a breath of fresh air specifically because it's a pure fantasy exploration of this really cool world in a not isekai modern isekai style setting and a lot of these shows are 
basically can be put, thought of in the same vein as something like Made in Abyss, where you're you're getting these fantasy worlds and and the exploration of them. And so I think maybe if listeners are going to go back and, and watch any of these shows or, or watch clips of them at least maybe if you love fantasy you will see something that is sort of missing in, in the modern anime landscape i think that's very true i also think that you know at the very end of this podcast we may discuss what we're looking forward to in the next iteration or the future iterations of isekai and i think female protagonists having more direct fantasy elements are things that are currently missing and things that we look forward to To continue on, I wanted to also mention that there were two main isekai that had a very strong impact on the West from this era, and there are two that we actually just mentioned, two that you have seen, and those are Inuyasha and Digimon, which came out in like 1999 to 2000. So Digimon in particular was actually pretty revolutionary in the way that it presented the isekai setting as a virtual world. So along with the Dot .hack franchise, I don't know if you've seen anything in that franchise, no. it was actually one of the first shows to do so. So how did we actually then get from these early iterations of isekai into this set of formalized tropes that we've been seeing over and over in modern anime because we just said that the early renditions were different, they had a different flavor to them. So to answer that question, we actually need to dig deeper into the world of fan fiction. And I know that's never something that's good to hear, but we're going to go do it. I mean, I think it's absolutely necessary for any discussion of Isekai to, to talk about how it not only derived from 90s fantasy anime, but also has been fueled by the fan fiction world and by young authors trying to make a name for themselves. So we got to do it. We got to talk about it. Yeah. I think fan fiction just has a strong connotation behind it. Which isn't isn't not fair. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. All right. So in the early 2000s, one of the most popular isekai light novels was The Familiar of Zero, which came out in 2004. And I think you have not seen The Familiar of Zero, right? No, but I definitely am familiar with it. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's hot, man. <laughs> Keep that in, please. <laughs> so The Familiar of Zero is its an incendiary show for sure. And... Oh. You know, maybe if I describe it to you, you'll you'll understand why that is. So the show is about Luis, who is a student at a magic academy, who one day tries to summon a magical creature to serve as her companion, her quote-unquote familiar. And she actually ends up accidentally summoning Saito, who is this ordinary teenage boy from Japan. So the show is actually just a tsundere harem comedy. And if, if you watch it, it is funny if you're okay with the tsundere elements and you're okay with the harem elements. Tread carefully by saying that this is funny. <laughs> yeah. So y- you have to be willing to actually go and watch it. And like, you have to like the kind of like gratuitous guilty pleasure that Familiar of Zero offers. The important thing that this show did is that it had this really appealing and malleable setting that further popularized the concept of quote unquote summoning a character into a fantasy world. And because of these elements, The Familiar of Zero became immensely popular among the fanfiction community who played on that original by having Luis summon a character from a different series or by self-inserting themselves into the story. The other thing that I did want to say about Familiar of Zero is that we mentioned at the the beginning of of the podcast that we're going to sort of touch on some of the tropes that modern isekai have developed. And I think one of them that is immediately obvious to anyone that's seen any modern isekai is the harem concept where the protagonist is just transported to another world and suddenly 
every woman he encounters wants to sleep with him and he develops a ton of different love interests and eventually picks one or maybe doesn't pick one and this show introduced harem aspects into isekai in a way that sort of launched it into popularity whereas other shows before that like we've talked about didn't have any harm aspects i actually i don't want to say that maybe some of them had some but this was really the show that yeah that set that trend yeah fushigi yugi kind of has a reverse harem concept but again it's it's still a little different and this one was like i said really a guilty pleasure show whereas previous iterations of isekai at least that i have seen have not had that type of guilty pleasure so the rapid growth of these fanfics also resulted in the rapid growth of a site where many of them were being posted online. And that site was called Shosetsuka Ninaro. Um, In English translation is Let's Become Novelists, and I'm going to refer to it, as most people do, as Naro for short. So Naro was actually created in 2004, and it served as a platform for amateur authors to post their original web novels. Notice that I did not say fanfics, original web novels. With the flood of the familiar of zero fanfics, though, it quickly transformed into a repository for fanfiction content, and it became a community for those authors that actually threatened to overwhelm the site and the original content that was being posted there. Because of this, in 2012, Naro actually banned fanfiction altogether. And what that did is that resulted in a change in the website and it resulted in a change in what would eventually lead to the current iteration of Isekai. So instead of giving up, what many of the fanfic authors did is they started writing stories that followed the structure of and contained elements of fanfiction, but didn't have explicit references to the source material. So many people actually regard this shift as the origin for some of the common tropes in isekai that we see today, and that's because many fanfics at the time were already isekai. So this is a well-established story structure that authors knew fans would enjoy and that the fans would be familiar with. And because of this, isekai stories that were fanfic but not fanfic blew up on Naro. And that was in the early 2010s and led to this codification of many of the common tropes that we actually see today. So some of those tropes are, you know, the strong male protagonist that's in this fantasy setting is the harem that we just mentioned, are these overt magical elements. So a lot of these elements came from these Naro-like stories. I did read at some point, I actually can't remember if it was Naro or another site, but it was probably Naro. And I don't know if you were going to mention this at some point, but that there were so many isekai stories flooding into the site at some point that they had to set limits on like the number of submissions that could be in the transported to another world genre, which just, I think, speaks to the volume of those kind of stories that are being submitted just to a site like that. And then a large portion of those get anime adaptations. So we're actually, even as anime fans, we feel very saturated with isekai, but that's only like a very small subset of what is actually being produced in sort of broader isekai world. And I think it's also important to touch on the fact that because these are young authors and novelists just kind of getting their start. They're relying on a formula that is, you know, tried and tested in terms of being successful. And so that's sometimes part of why we see a lot of repetition in Isekai, partly because they're obviously relying on that formula, but also because they're young authors. So, you know, not every young author or aspiring author is necessarily going to be a very strong writer. And even if they end up becoming a very strong writer, they might not be so originally. And so they have to sort of rely on tropes or introduce concepts that maybe don't quite make the most sense or aren't that effective or their character development isn't very fleshed out. Like all these different elements are a byproduct of the way in which 
isekai kind of comes from fanfics. You know, kind of addressing those two things. Yeah, you're right that the story that happened is that both Naro and Kadokawa have had these novel contests, so these publisher contests, and both of them recently have banned isekai entries altogether, <laughs> which is like, huh, how overwhelming must this genre have gotten that you just can't, you have to say no more? That's actually pretty wild. I don't know, but can anime studios do the same thing? No, how dare you, dude? I would literally die. So, and the other thing is, yeah, I think that's very true. And that leads to the obvious question of considering how kind of raw the stories are and how young these authors are, how was it possible that all of these stories got anime adaptations? You know, these web novels are competing with published works that uh, a lot of distributors are picking up. So how is it possible that they're getting anime adaptations, especially at the level that they are? And to understand that, we need to understand the kind of impetus for a lot of the Naro web novels actually getting into anime. There was this transformative point in 2012 where we saw the source material for some of the most well-known modern isekai start to appear on Naro. So shows that you may have heard of, ReZero, Konosuba, Overlord, and those are some of the biggest names that started on Naro on, in 2012. And I named three of the biggest shows probably of the last five to ten years. But it was really one story that started in the same year, but overshadowed all others and has completely dominated Naro's leaderboards for almost the past decade. And that show is Mushoku Tensei. Mushoku Tensei got an anime adaptation that aired in the winter 2021 season. And it's about this 34-year-old shut-in who gets evicted from his house after he skips his parents' funeral. Importantly, he skips his parents' funeral to have a cheeky wank. So. <laughs> you didn't have to ruin that, but uh, yeah, that, that's exactly right. So obviously his, his family members come home and uh, he's watching some top-tier hentai and uh, they throw him out. Understandably. They understandably <laughs> throw him out. And, and so what happens is he ends up wandering the streets, kind of questioning his entire life until that point, until he sees this truck about to barrel into a group of students and he pushes them out of the way, but he actually dies in the process. And now before we make any mentions of Truck Kun, I actually want to say that this was Truck Kun's debut. This was <laughs> the very first instance where a truck actually killed a protagonist and that protagonist was then reincarnated in another world. I mean, Mushaku Tensei is called the grandfather of, of modern isekai, I think, in a yeah. lot of spaces. And it, it sort of is cool to see that even, even Truck-kun is, can, dates back to Mushoku Tensei, in, yeah. along with all of the other sort of influences that it's had in the genre. Yeah, we can discuss that, that moniker if we have time. I will say, even the author of Mushoku Tensei really doesn't like that, doesn't think he's a grandfather. <laughs> well, um, he is. <laughs> this is a dangerous topic, tread carefully. <laughs> all right, so he wakes up reincarnated as an infant in this fantasy world, where the big twist is that he retains all of his previous memories, but he is this infant and he gets to grow up in this new fantasy world that has magical elements and he gets another chance at life. So because the web novel for Mushoku Tensei was easy to read, the writing was very easy to read, it had a plot evolution that was directly influenced by both fan comments and other popular works at the time, and the themes that were prevalent in the show of overcoming past trauma were things that really jived with fans. Mushoku Tensei quickly became the number one most popular story on Naro, and it held that spot for a long time after it finished serializing in the web uh, novel format in 2015. 
With this type of notoriety, Mushoku Tensei was able to influence many themes in isekai, and it defined others. So, for example, this story popularized the concept of being reincarnated as a subgenre of isekai, and it's really taken over the isekai scene in anime more recently. I also want to say that we're sort of talking about Mushoku Tensei now in the context of how it contributed to the boom of isekai and specifically how it influenced tropes and, and other works and so that's kind of the discussion we're going to have now if we have time at the end we we might actually talk about the show itself and what what happens in the show a little bit and some of the themes that are explored because i think the fact that it got an anime adaptation put it on a lot of people's radar recently and there is some content in there that i think merits discussion and i don't want people to think that we're just glossing over like the controversies surrounding mushoku tensei and the good aspects of it and the bad aspects of it and the parts of it that are hard to watch yeah absolutely i mean this may be something for another episode but yeah i think it's right to say that the show does deserve a more in-depth look but it has to be done in a space where we can actually talk about some of the themes and talk yeah. about the development of it in a way that's well-researched and, you know, in, in a way that's more neutral, yeah. for sure. So how does this actually relate to anime? How did stories like Mushoku Tensei, which you just heard us say are controversial and had very edgy and risque themes, how did they get anime adaptations? And that was because of two factors. So a little bit of luck and a lot of the right timing. Because what else happened in 2012? SAO, baby. Yeah, SAO, baby. All right. So we had the breakout sensational anime release of SAO. So let's talk about SAO just briefly, because SAO actually started as a web novel itself, and it was written by Reki Kawahara from 2002 to 2008. So Reki Kawahara is important here for two reasons. First of all, he showed the industry and he showed web novelists that they could circumvent commercial publishing and they could make their original works famous through things like novel contests. Uh, in 2008, he won a very famous Japanese novel contest with his story Excel World, which is fucking trash. Sorry. <laughs> And second, he showed that adaptations of web novels and specifically isekai web novels have the potential to be hugely popular anime. Sorry, now you're making me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, stray shots fired at Excel World, but it's merited. Oh my God, the anime adaptation is such fucking flaming garbage, it makes me want to die. I cannot believe this became an anime adaptation. It made me want to fucking pound my head in. All right. Besides that, let's get back <laughs> to this. Rant over. Continue. Okay. All right. Yeah, so he showed that isekai web novels can become hugely popular anime. I do not need to mention here how popular and well-liked and well-known SAO was among anime fans. And a lot of those fans in the early 2010s looked to Naro and to the fanfic community because they wanted to see something similar after SAO was done airing. So... Because Mushoku Tensei, at the exact same time that SAO was airing and that these fans were kind of migrating into looking to the fanfic community, just because Mushoku Tensei was number one on Naro at the time, this created a generation of media consumers that were influenced by Isekai and that still seek Isekai stories to this day. So all in all, this really gets us to the modern day where we're still seeing isekai titles that originated on Naro, continuing to get greenlit as anime and appearing in our anime seasons. Yeah.
Yeah, so I think that is basically the entire history of Isekai in, I don't really know how long that segment was, but like 30, 40 minutes. So hopefully everybody now has a, a better understanding of sort of where Isekai came from and, and how it got so popular and what shows really contributed to it becoming so popular. And if you're a fan of Isekai, hopefully it'll provide you with some idea of what to watch if you want to gain some of that context firsthand. So we want to now transition into talking about a few different isekai that that we've seen and that have been transformative. And now we'll actually talk about the shows in a little bit more detail and, and what they did for the genre rather than just talking about them in, in the context of the history. So the first one we absolutely have to talk about is Sword Art Online. Mm-hmm. Again, this came out in, in 2012. And We've talked about SAO a little bit on the podcast before. Mainly, Ravi <laughs> ranted about Alicization in our <laughs> in our 2020 anime review. Which, you, if you haven't listened to it, you should click on that episode and try <laughs> to find the portion of SAO because that shit was hilarious. But start out online. So, just to recap, the the shifts from early isekai and early fantasy shows are pretty clear here, and they really set the tone for what isekai would be going forward i mean we talked about how mushoku tensei was really the the driver for a lot of these changes but if we're talking specifically about anime adaptations it was sao that really kicked us off and showed just how successful and how much money isekai can make for studios and and producers and so what were the shifts from from early isekai so we have an insanely op male protagonist who has his own harem pretty standard but that that was novel for anime at the time so likable man kirito is so so likable so <laughs> he's just naturally good at everything like my guy doesn't have to struggle literally at all boys dual wielding bro <laughs> yeah i wish i could do a wield like that and the setting was was very clearly shifted to this jrpg style world which was marketed towards gamers and, and specifically in sao's case marketed towards gamers because it literally was a vr game that people got trapped in and I want to talk about that concept for, mm-hmm. for a second here with you. So I, I think I've said this about SAO many times before, but SAO receives a ton of hate and backlash now, which which many big franchises get. And I'm not a big SAO fan. I've seen all the way through Gun Gale Online. I don't particularly like it. I'm probably never going to watch more. A lot, So a lot of that hate is warranted, and we can sort of talk about the reasons why mm-hmm. some of that hate is warranted. But I think growing up, for most people at least, the first time that you saw SAO and you watched through the the first arc and heard the concept of them getting trapped in in this video game world. You thought the concept was cool, right? Like yeah. I think most people thought the concept no, was cool. At the absolutely. Time. I mean, it was a very cool concept and SAO was not the first one to do it. And yeah. so other shows that have done it, like I said, are Digimon. And yeah. one of the most well-loved shonen of all time, Hunter Hunter, had its own arc where gone was trapped in a virtual world. And this was the, what's it called? The uh, This was the Great Island arc. The but Great to be Island fair, arc, yeah. Hunter Hunter had been serialized for a while, but if we're just talking about anime adaptations, the, the newer Hunter Hunter rendition that most people are familiar with only started in, in 2011. And so by the time yeah. they get to Great Island, like SAO had, had already come out. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just like a subset of H&H. And I think in a lot of people's mind, it's not the strongest H&H arc. But yeah, SAO wasn't the first to do this by any means, but... When you saw the concept done in SAO, in the style in which it was done in SAO, like you, you thought it was cool at the time. Yeah, I will say this. And I, I think I have said this before, and I don't think this is a hot take. But the first three episodes of SAO are some of the most compelling 
episode some of the most well-written narrative structure that I have seen in any anime. I mean, it was so easy to get behind the suspense and the nature of the story when Kirito and all the rest of the people are just standing in that square and they're kind of faced with this villain telling them, you're now stuck in this game. If you die, you die. That's just a really compelling concept. As, you know, people who play video games ourselves, that you know, is terrifying, but it's also so cool. Yeah, no, it's definitely thrilling. Yeah, and I understand Kirito as an overpowered protagonist. Early on, that was something that really worked in his favor because it allowed us to explore the game and allowed us to, like, see a very strong person going through the game and, like, watching him raid these dungeons and explore and, like, make friends. And all of those elements were very interesting. It really went downhill once we started getting the the, the fucking Kirito ex Asuna marriage yeah. and children and all that stuff. Oh, when, when they adopt the when they adopt the child they find in the game, it's just yeah. the first time you facepalm in SAO and then yeah. you kind of never stop facepalming. And then they basically that. speed run the entire, like, yeah. in, entire story because they're in, like, levels one and two and you see that and then suddenly they're like, yeah, and then time skip, we're on level 40, and then we're, like, killing monsters and things. That shit was crazy, because, yeah. like, I remember watching SAO, and the first arc in that video game ends so much sooner than you think it does. It, like, genuinely caught me off guard that we were reaching, like, the final boss levels so early on. And while it was shocking at the time and was a twist, in hindsight, that really, I think ruined the pacing of that first SAO arc, especially because the second arc is absolute garbage dumpster fire level. Yeah. And if they had settled in and fleshed out the the video game world and added some challenges for Kirito, it actually may have been salvageable <laughs> in a lot of ways. But I really think that that went downhill. And it felt like that twist was written in just for the sake of a gotcha moment rather than anything substantial. I think this is like a, a very well talked about idea already that the pacing of the, the first arc really was done very poorly. And because of that, because a lot of fans have made this comment, I think that's what's led to the next rendition of SAO, SAO Progressive to come out. What I've heard is that it shifts it to Asuna's perspective, but also spends a lot more time exploring those early levels and seeing what goes on in the development between those characters. So hopefully that will do it better. I don't know if you're going to stick around to watch it. I will not. <laughs> <laughs> but getting back to the, the point of the, the story is that, like I said, SAO's first few episodes set up the the world and the story and the characters so well. As, as a brief spoiler, I mean, I think most of our episodes are spoiler tagged. Yeah. But that episode when Kirito joins the other guild and he gets a taste of what death for his friends actually looks like when his friends die inside that dungeon. He's withholding information that he's very high level, and so therefore he's essentially their protector. He can't protect them. They all die, and we get to see yeah, that Kirito that. so hung up on that fact and so sad about that fact. That was like a heart-wrenching moment where I was like, damn, this is a really good show. And it went downhill right after that, yeah. and I was just like, god damn it. <laughs> no, I, do, I actually do remember that episode as being pretty uh, affecting as well. And I think I want to say to to maybe a, a newer anime fan, if, if you weren't watching SAO at the time it came out or SAO wasn't the first isekai that, that you've seen, the ideas behind SAO might not seem that novel to you, right? Because you've, you've seen everything a thousand times over since then. But I think that is only because 
now it's been overdone and SAO was really kind of gave birth to how popular those ideas have been in anime adaptations. I mean, it's kind of the same thing that we talked about before with something like Madoka Magica, how that show completely deconstructed the magical girl genre and set the standards for how you could play with the magical girl formula. Now we've seen that done many, many times after. And so if you go back and watch Madoka, maybe it's like not that mind blowing, but it is because it was the first one to do so. And it's sort of the same thing with something like Evangelion. I, I actually had this experience with Evangelion where Evangelion I, I watched only in the past, oh, maybe like a year and a half ago. And I already already seen quite a decent amount of anime since then. And so I actually really like Evangelion and especially really like the movie End of Evangelion. But nothing in Evangelion when I watched it blew my mind as like a crazy twist. But I think for people going into Evangelion at the time that it came out, they were expecting a mech show with giant robots that fight each other, just like every other mech show that had existed up until then. But what Evangelion did was take that and make it very psychological and focus on the internal struggle of the characters and make it a lot darker. And that's something that the mech genre had had never seen before. And now it feels sort of natural that that would happen. But in the same way, SAO and Madoka and Evangelion redefined their their genres in, in a way that is maybe not obvious to people watching them retrospectively, but you always have to keep in perspective that all the influences that we see in anime since then are because of shows like that. Yeah, absolutely. I just think that you can respect SAO for what it did for yeah, the genre and I for the industry. This. And if you have not seen SAO... Give it a shot. Try it out. See what the first three or four episodes look like. You don't have to watch more than that if you find out you hate it. But at least to like get an awareness of what it did for the genre, it's useful in that regard. Yeah, I think it's good historical anime viewing, if, if nothing else. If you don't actually enjoy it, just for that purpose to watch a little bit of it, I think is worthwhile. Can we talk, can we talk about the pitfalls of, of SAO for a hot I feel like I've ranted about this so much. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think everybody sort of knows what the the negatives, the cons are to SAO. And a lot of those center around all the tropes that we've seen many times in Isekai that we don't really like. So we talked about Kirito not being that interesting of a protagonist. I mean, he's like pretty blank in general, like bland personality. And additionally, the thing that we talked about where he doesn't have to struggle through anything is not great it doesn't make for that compelling of a narrative because you know he's just going to solve any situation that that he gets in i mean the relationship between him and asuna is not that exciting there are tons of harem aspects so there are a lot of things to not like about sao it's just it's it's so problematic it's just so problematic with the characters and the plot and the pacing as you said kirito is essentially a cardboard cutout protagonist. His relationships with any of the other characters is based purely on the fact that he is OP and he can save them and get them out of essentially any death scenario. Asuna has straight up Stockholm Syndrome. She is like, fucking Kirito, do me in the butt because you're so strong. (laughs) People will argue that because this is a traumatic experience, that this may be one of the elements that causes these two characters to come together. The other thing, none of the supporting characters have any exposition or background given to them. Um, I would have loved to see the bartender, for example, get any arcs to him. Nothing. 
no idea. He's just there. He's just wielding a, a you know, a, a hammer or whatever the hell he's doing kind of in the background. The pacing of the show, as you said, is already severely problematic. It doesn't really make any sense how essentially in the first 13 episodes, they have three episodes where they're actually talking about clearing dungeons and then they immediately skip the very end where Kirito has a boss battle. He dies, but then somehow he doesn't actually, <laughs> he die. Doesn't actually die. Then we get into like elf fairy territory oh and then we God. get to Asuna being tentacle raped yeah. by like... Oh my God, don't get me into that arc. Fuck that. And his sister is like, I love you, but oh, we're not technically we're not <laughs> like technically related. We're just oh. like step siblings. That's like the she, she really pulls the but we're not related by blood card. <laughs> yeah. which is like, no, that's the domestic girlfriend <laughs> tactic. Don't do that. Yeah. So as you can see, severely problematic. I will say if by some godforsaken chance you stick around to the mother's Rosario arc, that is actually a quality arc where Asuna does get some backstory and you get some development to her character along with another character that I won't spoil because it is like very relevant to the actual show. That was a really good arc. You know, what's the surprise here? Kirito is not in that arc. So that's why this is so good. <laughs> I want to ask you, I basically got through, I don't even know the whole thing, but at least most of Gun Gale Online. And then I absolutely stopped watching SAO and, w and will not go back. I mean, it's just not for me. Oh, your boy's just fucking hitting out bullets out of the sky with his fucking lightsaber. And he's like, yeah, I'm in a new game, but I'm so good. I fucking maxed out everything, bro. I love how I'm, I'm trying to move on to a different question and you're out here still ranting about Kirito. But anyways, to return to what I wanted to ask you, you've, you've actually watched through Alicization and through some of the, the more recent stuff. So I'm, I'm yeah. curious, there must be, I mean, unless it's purely just sunk cost, there must be some kind of appeal still left in SAO for, for you personally. So what is keeping you watching? Are you going to keep watching? Because there's more stuff coming out. I think there's a movie coming out and some other stuff. So what what is in there for you? I'm, I'm, I'm a fucking curious. hopeful, optimistic degenerate, bro. It's just... <laughs> I, I really want to see this series get revived because I still feel so bad that it started off so well and had such interesting elements and worlds. And this is the thing. I, I'm giving a lot of shit to SAO, but SAO has some of the most interesting isekai worlds I have seen in any show. It develops these, th th these fantasy, sci-fi, virtual reality worlds are so cool and interesting and like the animation for them is great the the power dynamics and the leveling systems are really cool so to see those elements explored like i love seeing that in any sao iteration it's just the characters that are absolute garbage and that's why i'm hoping for other future renditions of SAO like Progressive, which should be much more focused on individual characters to give me something to actually like here. I'm really sad that nothing up to this point has. A little bit of it is, you know, as you said, sunk cost, like you're still watching Nagatoro for some godforsaken reason. <laughs> um, How else am I going to keep up with the memes? <laughs> I've told Yanni like 20 times to give up Nagatoro for Tokyo Revengers, and he's just like, can't. but what if Nagatoro gets better? I'm like, bro, <laughs> How is she possibly going to get better by now? <laughs> I mean, yeah, that that is admittedly just a sunk cause problem. I, I don't have any other defense for myself. But yeah. anyways, with SAO, I wish you good fortunes in your journey. Uh, stick around for future episodes of the podcast. And in some distant episode, we will check in with Ravi and see if his wish of SAO reviving itself into a decent anime has occurred. But from my perspective, it seems a little unlikely, but... I'm hoping it works out for you. 
Yeah, I will say SAO has been transformative for the industry. We can probably definitely. close on that. Um, yeah, it definitely has been. Some of the other elements, which I don't really want to get deep into here. Again, we have to probably talk about it in a specific space where we're well-researched on it. But other elements that are explored, like sexual assault, like being in abusive relationships, a lot of those are explored in SAO. And we see those, again, being explored in Mushoku Tensei. For listeners, you know, thinking about listening to us talk about those, that is a significant content warning if you do want to go watch anything from SAO or from Mushoku Tensei. Um, So let me just put that out there. Yep. I think that's important for people to know what they're getting themselves into. And there are arguments to be made about how successful any of those explorations are. And in, in Mushoku Tensei, I think there is definitely more of a community that actually has some appreciation for for that exploration in, in that specific show. In SAO, I haven't heard many positive things about the no, exploration of those concepts. So maybe that's an additional like content warning for anybody considering watching those shows. All right, should we move on to a few of the other shows that, that we want to talk about? Yeah, absolutely. I think we can probably talk at length about the next two. Great. All right. So the first one we want to talk about is ReZero. I mean, we've we've talked about ReZero a few times on the podcast, but I think it's very important that we talk about it here in, in the context of it being one of the shows that really kicked off the subversion of isekai trope set out by Mushoku Tensei, set out by SAO. And the way in which it did that is by taking its protagonist, Subaru, and rending the, the protagonist relatively powerless. You know, Subaru has this return by death power where he can, anytime he dies, he goes back to a checkpoint and can repeat his experiences until finding a way out of the current situation that he's in. But other than that, he literally just has his physical body and his brain to fight with and barely any other powers. I mean, he gains some powers as the series goes along. But in general, he's a very, very weak character. And he's not only weak in terms of his physical ability he's also pretty weak mentally which i think is pretty realistic for someone who is coming from a relatively i think what people would characterize unsuccessful life in in reality and additionally rezero created a much darker story in a much darker setting in which he's bound to fail repeatedly and have to work through all of those failures yeah, when we talked about some of the things that allow us to get invested in isekai and some of the things that have allowed the genre to take off, we talked about self-insert. And this is probably, of any isekai that I've seen, has allowed me to self-insert the most. Because Subaru is a character who knows about fantasy worlds, and that's an important element for almost all isekai. Usually the protagonists, in the modern isekai at least, know about the fantasy worlds because they're often otaku who get it trucked, and you're just <laughs> like... Okay, I'm in this world now. And an interesting, again, historical point to make is that as soon as Subaru is transported into this new fantasy world, he does say something. And that something is he says, is this one of those summoning things? And that's actually a direct reference back to Familiar of Zero. So, you know, ReZero's creator, who again started on Naro, is making a reference back to one of the original movements that made Naro famous, which is that Familiar of Zero fanfics. Again, it is interesting to see elements here that we can get behind that are nods to the older iterations of Isekai, where we didn't have overpowered protagonists, where we had these type of summonings, um, which we don't see as often. So that's really cool. I also think the point you mentioned about Subaru 
thinking he knows what kind of world he's been transported to at the outset of ReZero very closely mirrors the expectations of the viewer watching the show because, again, this is one of the early anime subversions of Isekai, so you think you know exactly where this story is heading. You know, Subaru dies in the real world, he gets reincarnated in a JRPG-style world, he quickly finds a love interest, like, he, he meets Amelia pretty early on, and so you think you know exactly where this is going, and then towards the end of the first episode, he gets brutally murdered while trying to help Amelia, and suddenly you're like, fuck, this is not at all what I thought I was in for. And it's cool that that is mirrored by Subaru's actual experience because he also thinks he knows what he's getting himself into or what he's gotten into. And that turns out to very quickly not be the case. I just think, what did you think about Subaru as a protagonist? So Subaru is Subaru is interesting. So he's not at all the the OP protagonist you'd, you'd expect in a show like this. And I think the, the good parts about Subaru are that because of the setting that he's put in, because of this subversion, he has to come to terms with the fact that he's a failure when everything he thought was holding him back in the real world, you know, he was a failure in the real world. All of the all of those roadblocks get stripped away and he's still a failure and insufferable in this fantasy world and he has to then relook at himself in the mirror and say, "Okay, Maybe I need to better myself in all of these different ways because it actually isn't just my environment that's fucking me over. It is a lot of things that are intrinsic to me that that I can work on and change. I think those are the good parts about Subaru's character. I think the negative parts are because we're trying to see that progression that he's relatively insufferable early on and very, very cringeworthy. I think it's just the best way to describe him. But there is some eventual payoff. For example, episode four of... The second season of ReZero is a look at Subaru's life in the real world, which we previously hadn't gotten in season one. I think that is a really cool moment where and a pretty emotional episode in which we're able to see, okay, this is what his environment looked like. This is why he turned out to be insufferable, whether it was in the real world or not. And the episode also delves into him actually confronting the that idea head on. And so, yeah, you take the good with the bad. If you want the character progression you have to sit through the cringy Subaru moments, which I'm sure anybody who's seen ReZero knows. And so he's an interesting protagonist is that way. I will say for me, he's not really a self-insert and not really someone I can personally relate to, but I think I could see why people might. I think we should definitely save some thoughts for maybe a deep dive into ReZero because I think this is a show that will deserve it. I will say that I definitely have issues with Subaru. I definitely have issues with his relationship to the other female uh, leads in the show. I started off watching ReZero thinking how different and refreshing this was. Um, This was, again, well before I knew about the history of the show and how it was also a web novel that started at the exact same time as Mushoku Tensei and Konosube and Overlord, et cetera, et cetera. And as I watch it more and like as I've understood this history, I am realizing, okay, there are still elements here. There is still the harem element. There is still the element of him having a power that nobody else has. And these are all elements that I think like Konosuba has kind of deconstructed a little bit and it has made fun of a little bit. Yeah, and I mean, I don't want to sit here and say there are a lot of things I think ReZero does well and it has very interesting concepts, but I'm not going to sit here and say that ReZero is like the best written show of all times and specifically the characters in it, some of them I don't think are the best written and you could make the case that, that Subaru is not that well written, but I still think there are some interesting aspects to his character. And I mean, if nothing else, we got the 
incredible I love Amelia meme out out of the whole thing that just absolutely makes it worth it <laughs> poor fucking rem sorry if you're a rem fan but and you got echidna yeah echidna my fucking girl i also wanted to touch on really quickly i think another thing that makes rezero stand out and is maybe a return to some of the fantasy aspects that this guy was born out of is that rezero is a very lore heavy story and i think that's unusual for a lot of the modern East guy we get you know we get these cardboard replications with one twist of the same exact formula that we've seen many times over and I think with ReZero we don't get that there's a ton of depth to the world and rather than just reusing those same same building blocks there's tons of elements that have a lot of background and a lot of context and some of them are not all present in the anime and you do have to go dig through the actual light novels or read more about the world where it's been written about in other places to get the full experience. But if you want to be invested into the lore, you can be, you know, there's all of the witches, there's Amelia's backstory, there's Satella and her relationship with Subaru. That ties into why Subaru has the return by death power at all. There's the different mobbies, there's Betty, the archbishops and the witch cult, you know, all these things are just basically me coming up with a list of random characters and concepts in the show that have backstory but there are many many more and so i think that it's cool that you can tell the author has at least thought about the world beyond just reusing a lot of the stuff that we've already seen in isekai so you can get very attached and invested to the lore of something like rezero if you want to i think that's very true i think also the author of rezero has done a ton of work thinking about the timelines and how subaru going back and forth in time is done in a way that you know maintains causality and explores a ton of other stories I think the time travel in that show is exceptionally well done and all of the lore that allows us to explore by doing this return by death is very cool. I think, again, my my, stuck, my sticking point is always that the character relationships and the character development. I think I think that's completely fair, but I, I do agree on, on the time travel aspect. I think it was very smart to set the boundaries of the time travel yeah. to just moving back to a certain checkpoint and that keeps it engaging and creates a puzzle-like situation where Subaru has to figure out sort of the right way to deal with certain situations. But... It doesn't run into any of the problems that a lot of time travel shows typically do. One last note about these shows, and I guess I could have put this a little bit later, but we're just going to talk about it now. And the note is that the authors of ReZero, Konosuba, and Mushoku Tensei are all close friends who are actually big fans of each other's works. And I think we're going to talk about Konosuba in a second, but you can actually see the influences between these three shows, even just when you're watching the anime adaptations. But it makes sense because they all came out at on Naro, you know, in very close proximity to each other. I'm glad you brought that up because this is one of the points that actually leads me to say that we shouldn't be thinking of Mushoku Tensei as the quote-unquote grandfather of Isekai. And the author for Mushoku Tensei has even come out in interviews and said that some of the climactic moments of his, his web novel are directly taken from ReZero, are directly taken from earlier Naro works. And so one of the really cool things about Mushoku Tensei, cool in in loose terms, (laughs) is that the author, when he was writing it, was writing it like I said before, with fan feedback, with commentary, and trying to change the story to make it the most read story on the site, right? His goal was to make this a story that people wanted to read. And that's why early on, 
Mushoku Tensei was not going to be a story that everyone loved. It has very risky, edgy elements to it, including sexual assault, because it's set in an era of it's uh, a like horny, medieval England. It's a horny series. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and the protagonist is not someone we can get behind. But the reason that people fell in love with it is because of characters that got introduced, like Roxy, because of elements where the protagonist is overcoming his past trauma and is growing to someone that is hopefully more likable and more serious as a opposed to a pervy piece of shit for the entirety of the show. The anime, I will say up until this point, has not done a really great job of showing that character development into someone who is more than just a perv. But we're really just only seeing the tip of the iceberg in terms of the content. So I I think that there is still a lot to see there, but it is good to know the history and origins of these stories when we talk about them. I mean, I think if you if your perception of Subaru is negative as a protagonist because he's cringeworthy and he is not that great of a person, then you should maybe stay far away from Rudius in, in Mushoku Tensei because he's actually much more of a piece of shit than, than Subaru is. That sort of character growth and character archetype is definitely taken to the extreme in, in Mushoku Tensei as, as compared to even it is in, in ReZero. I also did want to say just specifically with regards to, to ReZero and Mushoku Tensei that I think one reason why the anime adaptations are so popular is because the studios working on them have put clearly a lot of care and intent into the adaptations. And, you know, for example, we, we've talked about this before, but, you know, White Fox taking ReZero and stretching out the episodes to give us almost 30 minutes of content just to fit in extra pieces of lore and actually be able to tell a story in a paced out way that they want to. And, you know, Mushoku Tensei has been praised a lot for its animation, which looks spectacular. Like if you just want to go even look up clips from Mushoku Tensei where, where they're using magic, the world feels very, very fleshed out and and I mean, I don't want to say realistic, but you know, you know what I mean? Realistic in like a fantasy sense. It feels very lived in. And Studio Bind was created solely for the purpose yeah. of animating Mushoku Tensei. And the animation cast, the key animators for that are taken directly from other animation studios. They are very, very experienced. They have a ton of other isekai under their belt. And they've created a story where... The animation is fluid and dynamic and really easy to get behind. It's very artistic. So even if you can't get behind Rudius, and I know he is extremely hard to get behind, watching it for the animation itself is an experience. So I think we should move on to to the last show we're sort of going to talk about it in a little bit more depth. But before we do, I already mentioned that Echidna was my favorite girl in ReZero. Who's yours? How dare you? <laughs> you don't have one? I think probably Krush, honestly. <laughs> I was going to say Krush. The period where right after the whale... Oh God, is this going to spoil it? Yeah. Can we spoil this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fine. Okay, yeah. So right after they kill the, the white whale, and then Krush is like, I'm falling for you, baby. <laughs> that was so bad. And then, again, of course, she loses her memory in the second season, and yep. then she becomes like a child again. I was like, I loved you, Krush. And you still maintain some elements of your like strong personality, which is what I liked about her. I'm worried that she's going to get thrown to the harem, and that's something I yeah. really don't want. 
All right. Well, Ravi's best girl is Satella, so let's move on. Oh, uh, my girl. <laughs> <laughs> What's the the witch of uh, the Wrath one? She's oh, hilarious. my God. Yeah, she's great. I completely forgot her actual name, but she is actually hilarious. We just haven't seen that that much of her. Actually, all the witches are quite colorful in their yeah. designs and their personalities, which I really, really like. All right. So we're going to lastly wrap up by talking about Konosuba. So how does Konosuba subvert all of the isekai tropes that we've discussed? And I want to talk about Konosuba because I like the show, but also because it does this subversion in a very different way than ReZero does. And the way that it does this is by injecting comedy into the show. And rather than flipping all the tropes upside down, it exaggerates the tropes in an extreme way so that each character fulfills the tropes to the point of absurdity. And that results in the show that is very self-aware about the isekai genre in a pretty hilarious way, at least in my opinion. I just started watching this, actually. So I was saving Konosuba, man. I was saving Konosuba for a better day. And we did this episode and I was like, okay, I have to actually watch Konosuba. This is one that was so deep on my list because I wanted the perfect opportunity and time to watch it. And I have to say, it is still hilarious. It is literally crack for my brain because (laughs) it's it's hilarious. It's garbage. It is. It's just binge worthy, basically. I mean, and the way Konosuba works is, you know, we just talked about ReZero being lore heavy and very plot driven and story driven. Konosuba is the opposite. The point of Konosuba is to get you attached to its characters to the point where you can watch them do anything and you're going to find it funny just because you're attached to them and their specific quirky personalities. So you have Kazuma, who is the, I guess, protagonist who gets reincarnated into this world. You have a similar situation to to what happens in ReZero where he gets reincarnated. He meets this goddess named Aqua, who we'll talk about in a second. And he basically thinks he's he knows what's going to happen. He's going to get reincarnated. He's going to be this powerful hero who who saves the world. And in fact, he is like Subaru in the sense that he's basically powerless and he's shit at like all the actually useful magical things you can do in this world. But he's also extremely lucky and out of the gang that he forms he's pretty much the only one who has any common sense so he needs to like rail them in in order to even be any sort of functioning party at all Mm -hmm. and then you have aqua who the way in which she gets drawn into the world is that kazuba gets reincarnated and he's allowed to pick one object to bring with him into into this new world to aid him on his adventure and you know most people get reincarnated they pick like a powerful sword or, or some other object and he thinks he's being clever by designating Aqua herself as the object, I guess, that he is taking with him into this new world, thinking that she'll be this powerful goddess that that can help him with anything. But she really loses all of her powers, basically, all of her goddess powers when she's reincarnated with him. And so she ends up being completely useless. The useless goddess is, the you know, a meme from, from Konosuba. On top of that, she has both drinking problems and financial money management problems. So he's stuck with her. 
And then the other two characters that he gets added to his party are Megaman, who's this insanely powerful wizard, but she faints after a single use of her abilities and out of principle refuses to learn anything other than explosion magic because in her words, explosion magic is the most beautiful form of all magic in the universe. And Darkness is a knight who can't hit anything with her sword to save her life, but basically just loves to be used as a human shield. And that's what we get. This this party of four insanely exaggerated characters that you can really just watch do anything because they'll be so hilarious doing it. Yeah, I think the characters are fantastic. And yeah. just the little ploys that the author puts into every single character, having a useless goddess, having an overpowered mage that's like a one shot only, having a, a masochist as yeah. like a, as a knight. All of those elements are just hilarious to watch. The character designs are fantastic. The color palette for the show is really well done. It's bright. It's evocative. So I just think like the actual adaptation of the show as an anime was done so well. I mean, some of the running gags in the show are fucking hilarious. You haven't gotten to some of these, so mm -hmm. you'll know what I mean when you get to them. But the high Kazuma Desu fucking <laughs> repeated line makes me laugh every single fucking time the chun chun maru bit is like one of my favorite comedy bits in anything ever that shit is so hilarious i think that's in season two but once mm -hmm. you get to that you're gonna be absolutely dying like if i'm having a bad day i'll literally just google konosuba chun chun maru <laughs> just fucking watch it because it's so hilarious this has elements that you know like i talked about in re-zero because the protagonist is not overpowered. He's just a normal person now put into this abnormal circumstance. All he can do is steal panties, basically. Exactly. Konosuba <laughs> is, oh, God, why would you say that? Why would you make this into a straight degenerate episode? That's I had such high standards. <laughs> so as I was about to say, I can self-insert to this, this guy. I literally cannot now say that because you said it's just straight up him being a pervert. <laughs> Oh, man. How are you? How will you ever recover from that? Well, aside from that point, <laughs> I was going to say that because we have an MC who is completely underpowered, who is like in this world where most people in RPGs get this character selection thing where they can build up the character that want they want to be and like they can actually go on quests and get better and they have like an exponential growth. And the hilarious part of the first few episodes is our character wanders into this world. He has shit stats from baseline. He's just like, how did I get into this world with no money, no stats, and a useless person with me who is still technically overpowered but can't do anything? And so he's trying to find a way to actually defeat this demon lord in the world, which was his quest at the outset. But in the first few episodes, he's basically sleeping in a haystack. They're sure. at a construction site because he can't figure out how to actually gain like enough XP to level up. So it's, it's just literally hilarious. Kodosuba is really the embodiment of it's the journey, not the destination, even though that sounds super cliche, because the plot of defeating the demon king, like you mentioned, is pretty much unimportant. Any progress that the gang makes towards that goal is literally just a byproduct of their shenanigans and them doing stupid shit rather than them actively pursuing it. In reality, they're literally just trying to make enough money so that they can live somewhere. That's like really all that they're trying to do. And Kazuma even has lines about this where he's like, 
you know, I don't really care about defeating the Demon King. Like, why don't we just like try to make enough money for ourselves and just live like a good enough life here in the starter town that we got yeah. placed in? Because what else are we supposed to do? His face where every time Aqua pulls some stupid shit or like Mega Man is like fucking killing herself after like one shotting something where he's looking at them with the utter distaste and like disdain on his face. That is such a good meme. That is just like the true ultimate sadness meme. <laughs> yeah. I mean, also, there's this, there's also the bit where Kazuma is helping Megaman practice her explosion magic. Yeah, and on so the castle. Like, <laughs> yeah. And it ends up being the castle where like one of the Demon King generals lives. Yeah. And so they like brought mayhem, like his wrath to the town by literally just having Megaman explosion onto his castle <laughs> and like piss him off by making noise. And there's just this hilarious comedic timing bit where they're like going up to the castle shooting off explosion magic going back and it's repeated like day after day after day it's yeah. just it's just really good in general Kotosuba is very self-aware and and does a lot of things to subvert the typical tropes that, that you'd see in any sky show really really well it's, it's just enjoyable yeah totally i think when it came out which was what like 2016, 2018? 2016, 2016. 2016, yeah. Well, there are multiple seasons and a movie, so. Yeah, so when it when it came out in 2016 again, it made a huge splash, and it really got people back into the isekai genre. As a refresher, but, you know, as you say, a deconstruction or, you know, by subverting these tropes. So I think every step of the way, we are getting these refreshing takes on what isekai can be, and that's really nice. Like, again, I love the genre. I love seeing all the stuff that it is and could become it'll be very cool to continue to see new elements come to isekai like konosuba like mushoku tensei like re-zero you know these are three big ones but you know I i'm very excited to see what we have ahead for us yeah so maybe before we start talking about where isekai as a genre might go from here I really quickly wanted to just highlight a few other notable isekai that, that came out in the span, you know, around SAO up until the modern era, and maybe just quickly highlight what interesting twists those make on the formula and the tropes that we've already discussed. So the first of those is Overlord, where the concept is just that the isekai protagonist post-reincarnation becomes the villain of the world rather than the hero. I think that's super interesting. We've talked about Devil as a part-timer on the podcast before, but that's a reverse isekai where people in the magical world are transported to our current world uh, and also infuses a lot of comedic aspects just like Kodosuba does. No Game No Life, which I hate mentioning because Robbie wants to internally cry that we haven't gotten a season two every single time I do. But that actually also was a landmark show in a lot of ways because it's an isekai where most isekai are battle action oriented and No Game No Life subverted that by making all of the competition, the progression in the world be based on puzzles, mind games, board games. And that was the OP power that, that the protagonists have. Hey, Yanni, yeah, what do you that? think about Shiro? Stop. Don't say, don't say <laughs> shit like that. <laughs> There's a little bit of like pseudo incest in No Game, No Life. But, uh, pseudo incest, great, bro, she's like 10 years show. old and the show starts with a panty shot. It's so not great. Even though, <laughs> even though I'm going to say I love the concept of No Game, No Life. Yeah. Again, there are some indefensible. We really haven't gotten back to the having strong female protagonists that, that uh, we did in the 90s. No, we, ha we definitely have not, which, which would be great, honestly. And then the, the last few shows, so Log Horizon, which I know you love as well, mm -hmm. inserted some 
really true RPG elements where there is a group of central characters and the puzzles that they have to solve are often dictated by by thinking through the the RPG-like elements of the world. And then most recently, we've gotten Rising of the Shield Hero and Slime and, and a few other shows, which I think have been smaller sort of recent refinements on, on the Isekai formula, but are shows that, that a lot of people do enjoy. I think especially Shield Hero, people are really excited for upcoming seasons. So, Yeah, unfortunately, Shield Hero does suffer from some of the continuing OP protagonist. I will say that <laughs> Raftalia is definitely a big reason that a lot of people like yes. Shield Hero. Oh, Shield yeah. Hero. One of the cool things that you know that this show does is that it has everyone hate on the protagonist at the outset of this, and he has to essentially solve how he's going to save the world by himself. And that is like a very compelling concept. Um, yeah. As an ostracized hero, how do I save this world? Again. It has a lot of distasteful things to slog through, including yeah. slavery, including sexual assault, including Raftalia being 10 years old. Just going to let that slide in there. <laughs> yeah, there are some problematic concepts at Isekai that I think we've yeah. touched on a lot. So I think that it's obvious that that's the case. And sometimes those are not explored very well and definitely not tastefully so. Yeah. I, the, the reason, you know, I say that I love Isekai but have to mention these concepts is so that we don't come across as saying that Isekai is perfect. You know, we definitely... No, want we to would never do that. Yeah, well, <laughs> you would never do that. Uh, so, you know, I definitely want to mention that there is a lot of forward motion that Isekai has to do, has to make, and, like, amends it has to make. And that's anime in general. Yeah, so maybe let's have a very quick discussion about at least where we think the Isekai genre can move forward. So... I want to pose this question to you. How, how long do you think the isekai boom can continue? Because I think we're continuing to see twists on the formula that in some instances are good and in other instances feel really empty. So if you take something like Restaurant to Another World or Another World with My Smartphone, those are actually shows that came out where the twist is exactly what it sounds like. And so you get this pretty sort of empty feeling show and i think a lot of people in the anime world expected the boom of isekai to die out at some point and it just hasn't and i guess the answer to that is that it still makes a lot of money for studios given how much effort they have to put into adapting it how much effort writers have to put into creating those stories but what do you think about how long that this can continue to to go forward? It's a fair question. I think what also needs to be talked about is the time lag between the source material and the anime adaptation. Mm -hmm. So we talked about how ReZero, Konosuba, and Mushoku Tensai all got source material created on Naro in 2012. And they have only really gotten adaptations from like 2016 now through 2021, which is when Mushoku Tensai came out. And so there's a clear time lag of four to six years-ish between the source material getting adapted into a manga, getting adapted into uh, an anime, and then actually coming out. And so I think we still have a good like five or six years at least of source material that is still unexplored. So I think that at least, you know, mid 2020s is, is when we'll still have isekai coming out and concepts being explored. But just more generally, I mean, this is a concept that we talked about has been around and has been booming since even the 90s. I don't think isekai will ever really die away unless you're saying that we're just going to suddenly stop liking fantasy elements or sci-fi elements or, you know, likable 
uh, quote unquote likable protagonists. But, you know, these are all things that I can look forward to that I think a lot of the community looks forward to for reasons that we've mentioned. Yeah, I think I agree. I guess what I'll say is I would prefer that sort of the oversaturation of Isekai in exactly the current formula it has. I would love for that to die out a little bit and for us to... Bro, he has a smartphone. That's totally different. (laughs) What are you talking about? Yes, I I swear for that one, someone just picked a concept out of a hat and just like was great. This is the show we're making. But I don't think Isekai will ever truly die out either because it's such sort of a, a ubiquitous concept and it's such an appealing concept but i would like to see twists on the formula that are more compelling stuff that's really groundbreaking like ReZero was or like konosuba was that actually makes a, a significant change to the formula and to into the mechanics and, and subverts your expectations i think ironically all the fantasy aspects that isekai was born out of feel really underexplored and specifically i mean i love fantasy and i would love to see a return to that and i would Specifically, you'd like to see a return to more female protagonists. I think this is generally a a problem in anime. And it would be great to have an isekai world where we had a female protagonist that actually had agency and was progressing in the world the way a lot of the main male characters do rather than just being reduced to like okay the female is just the love interest or a harem member or is a tsundere or you know whatever of the tropes we see like is maybe just a healer in the party like we don't you know i would love to see a progression from that anime in general but specifically in isekai i agree with you i think i mean these are things that really have not been explored well since i would say even the 80s even when we talked about some of the 90s isekai like I don't, I don't think Inuyasha really explored Kagome's agency well. The show was literally called Inuyasha when Kagome was supposed to be the main character, and it's supposed to be about their love relationship, but it's mostly about Inuyasha killing demons. And so, you know, this is something that I, I, I agree with you. I'm looking forward to as well. I think this is a huge open space which would allow a lot of writers to talk about what are some of the issues that females would face in this space. What would their relationships and romances look like? Again, if you're very interested in this, go watch some of the older works like Fushigi Yugi, which I think that the concept of a shoujo isekai is something that we haven't seen a lot of, something that you know I would love to see again. And mixing of different genres, as you said, you know, a mech isekai, a magical girl isekai, just a lot of these things are, are yeah. things we haven't seen and things that I think we would all love. Yeah, it feels weird to say that something as saturated as isekai has a lot of room for exploration, but I think it is true because we've gotten oversaturation in a very specific niche and not in all the other cool storytelling avenues that something like isekai opens up i also think it's amazing that we actually haven't talked about spirited away at all in this podcast but like spirited away is an isekai and it's a good one it's very clear that miyazaki was so influenced by isekai and this is this is something that's important because anime is driven by sales and one of the reasons that spirited away was so popular it was incredibly popular until it was like dethroned by your name and then later by demon slayer for example I think one of the reasons it was so popular is because the concept of an isekai being transported to a different world is cross-cultural. As we said, some of the earliest renditions were things like Alice in Wonderland. So many different cultures and societies have this story archetype where a character is transported to a fantastical world, and that's something we can all get behind. So Miyazaki, playing on that, was able to create such a popular work, and therefore, again, I think there's a lot to explore and a lot about isekai that we all love. 
Yeah, I mean, and that just kind of wraps up the fantasy elements that we've talked about as the origins of isekai, where if you take the concept of isekai and mix it with fantasy elements that Miyazaki can bring to life through his imagination, then you have a recipe for a very, very compelling story. So to sort of connect that to where we'd like to see isekai go, those are the kind of things that that I would love to see in the isekai genre, things that are really, really imaginative where you have creators. I don't know if anybody is going to be on Miyazaki's level, but, you know, attempting to at least create rich worlds in, in the way that he did. Yeah, I'd love to see X-Arm in a fantasy world. <laughs> Please do it. All right. So I think we'll wrap it up there. Hopefully you enjoyed the long-awaited Isekai episode. Ravi did a ton of work researching everything that ever happened in the history of Isekai. So hopefully this was informative and you learned something about our thoughts on on Isekai and where we think the genre could go in the future, but also its its roots in, in fantasy. Otherwise, please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, anywhere that you get your podcasts. We're there. If you use Apple Podcasts, it would mean a lot if you could give us a five-star rating and a review on there. It really helps us out a lot. Check us out on Twitter at BakaManterPod, our website, BakaManter.com. Our next episode, we're going to be having another guest on the podcast, which we are super, super hyped for. Should be a super good episode. So definitely stay tuned for that coming out soon. And otherwise, we've been the Baka Banter Lads, and we'll catch you all in the next one. <laughs>